He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice all kinds of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there are certain stories that were written in the 19th century that focus on the idea of identity and clothing. One of the ones that might come to mind if you spent any time reading novels from the 19th century is Mark Twain's short essay, The Prince and the Pauper. It is the story you may remember of um, the prince, Edward VI, and a pauper named Tom who looked identical to him. And on one occasion, Tom was encouraged to go up into the palace because of his likeness to the prince. And as the story unfolds, and you know this, at one point they change clothing and everyone confuses Tom to be Edward and Edward to be Tom. Um, The prince is ultimately kicked out of the palace. He is uh, sent to dwell with the common people. And no one believes that he's the prince because it's one of the greatest examples of mistaken identity. Because of his clothing, no one recognizes who he really is. And there are a myriad of lessons that we can draw from the story of the prince and the pauper. But as we reflect on what the Apostle Paul is doing here in Ephesians 4, I want us to consider the fact that what Paul is dealing with as he comes to apply the gospel now to the individual lives of believers is he is dealing with the issue of the believer's true identity and the clothing that ought to mark off the believer on the basis of who who he or she already is in Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul is going to do this here in Ephesians. He's going to do it over in Colossians chapter 3. It's one of his favorite illustrations when he talks about the identity of believers and believers being new creatures in Christ. He uses that analogy of putting off and putting on, dressing in accord with what Christ has already made us 
and the position we already have in Christ. Well, this passage here in Ephesians 4, 17 through verse 32 divides very nicely into three categories. We're going to see this morning that Paul is going to call these believers to know what we were before we were in Christ and then what we are now that we are in Christ by faith and what we are to become because of what we already are, what we were, what we are, and what we are to become. Well, notice this as Paul is writing this letter. You will remember that at the very outset of this letter, he talked about Christ being the head of everything. And, and he talked about Christ as the head over all things, filling the body of his people. He's used that illustration of the members of the church being members of the one body of Christ. And he has left us off by talking about the whole body growing up and maturing into the likeness of Christ until the whole body takes on the image of Christ. That's, that's the great That's the great application that Paul wants to lead with, is that the members of the church are collectively growing together and maturing under the ministry of God's word until all the members come to the fullness of the image of Christ. And with that as the background of what Paul is doing, he now does for the third time something he has pressed home already in this letter— he again, for the third time, reminds these new believers what they were before they were in Christ. Now, you have to listen very carefully this morning. There are two times in chapter 2 when the apostle reminds believers of what they were. The first time is at the beginning of chapter 2 when he says, you were dead in sins and trespasses. He's talking about the believer's relationship with God. By nature, we were dead in sins and trespasses. We were not reconciled to God. God came and made us alive with Christ. He reconciled us to himself. And then the second time that the apostle talks about what we were is at the end of chapter 2, and he speaks of, by nature, our Christlessness, our churchlessness, our promiselessness, our hopelessness, our godlessness, and, and all in relationship to others. He talks about the hostility that we lived in to others and how Christ has united together in one Jews and Gentiles who were separated and hostile to one another. So Paul first says, remember what you were in relationship to God. And then he says, remember what you were in relationship to others. And now he is going to say, remember what you were in and of yourself in the lifestyle that you lived before you were in Christ. Paul is very strategic. Notice this, verse 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, um, the majority of new converts that Paul's writing to were Gentiles. They were not Jews. They had received the gospel, they had come out from the nations, they had been gathered together into this new, this new humanity, Jew and Gentile, believing together in Christ. They had been brought into a new world of grace, they had been brought out of their old pagan lifestyles, and, and when Paul goes to describe how they lived before they were in Christ, he gives six very stark definitions gives six very bleak statements about what all men are like 
by nature. If you want to know, and let me say this this morning because I read all the time, most people are good. No, they're not. What Paul's going to say is everyone is like this by nature. Number one, and we were like this. Notice what he says, in the futility of their minds. Now, the word that he uses there for futility is the Greek word that is translated out of the Hebrew that is used in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, that, that there was a futility to all the thinking of those who are outside of Christ. There's absolute futility. Um, I was watching this week because everyone's enamored with Elon Musk and watching Elon Musk in a video talking about the meaning of life, and all I can say is it was totally empty, totally vain. One of the, one of the most innovative individuals of our lifetime doesn't have any answer for the meaning of life. Essentially, you just go along, and the more you go into it and ask questions, the more you learn. It's all vanity. It's all futility. Um, notice that the apostle starts there in the mind. Notice that, verse 17, in the futility of their minds. Where, where does our natural depravity begin in our minds? Um, Paul will end this list with the actions. Notice the last one, working all uncleanness with greediness. So he moves from the mind to the actions. And that's instructive because that means all of the depravity that we have lived in by nature starts in, in the inner processing of the way in which we think about things. Notice what Paul says. He says, In the futility of their minds, notice verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. It's not that they don't know there's a God. Paul is going to say in Romans 1 that all men have a knowledge of God. All men have what is revealed about God in them, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Their understanding is darkened by nature. That that was true of us. Darkened understanding. A, a, a A willful suppressing of the truth about God. Um, Jesus will explain this when he explains why men hated him. He said, because they love darkness rather than light. Men love darkness rather than light. Um, That's what we were like by nature. Notice number three, he says that uh, we by nature were alienated from the life of God. We We were cut off from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us. Even though there is that sense of deity and we know that we live and move and have our being in him, we breathe his air, he is everywhere, he fills the heavens and the earth, men are alienated by nature from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. Notice what Paul says, due to the hardness of heart. Now, I want you to see this this morning as we go through these six things and we haven't even finished yet. It's as if it's going deeper and darker and worse and worse. Futility of their minds, hardness of heart. Now notice the next one. They've become callous. And this is frightening. This is frightening because what this is saying is essentially what Paul says in Romans 1, that God gives men up by nature. He gives men up to what they want until they don't even have a sense of conviction that what they're doing is evil. This is why we live in a country that's fine with slaughtering babies. They're callous. They're callous. If you don't think so, just read some of the horrific statements on social media 
about those that want to kill babies. I literally watched a video of a woman say that she would kill her baby just to kill the baby. By nature, that's not just one or two people. By nature, all mankind, all of the nations have hard hearts, have become callous, notice this, have given themselves up, there's that language, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Notice Paul is going generally. He's not going into all the minutiae. He's saying any of the wickedness that you could ever devise, any of the wicked things that you would ever want to do, that's what we by nature are given over to do. Now, Paul is reminding them what they were like before they were in Christ. That's exactly what you and I are like by nature. Exactly. We are part of that fallen mass of depravity. Now, Paul is not setting that out to discourage them. He is, in fact, telling them that they need to know who they are. You know, we, we live in a day when we have one of the greatest identity crises in the history of humanity. Um, men don't know that they're men. Women don't know that they're women. People don't know that they're people. They think they're animals. Every kind of identity crisis imaginable. And Paul wants to make sure that we don't have an identity crisis. He wants you to know what you were because he wants you to know what you are now in Christ. Notice this. He says in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. As he enters in now to say what you are, I love this. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ. Now, you might expect him to say, that is not the way that you learned from Christ, but he doesn't say that. In the Greek, it's very intentional. That is not the way you learned Christ. You see, if you've been redeemed by Christ, you have learned Christ. You have been schooled by Christ. You have been united to Christ. Everything about him is for you, for your redemption. He is the head. We are the body. He gives nourishment to us. Everything about him is what he teaches us. Um, if you want to know your true identity, it is that you are a new creature in Christ and that you are to be conformed more and more to his image. That's, that's the epicenter of your identity. You are a new creature. Notice, notice what Paul says. He says in verse 22, he says, you put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt, and that you are renewed in the spirit of your minds. You are to put on the new self. Um, there was a... There was a Puritan theologian who every morning when he got up, he would put his clothes on and he would stop and pray, Lord, clothe me with the righteousness of Christ. Every, everything that he did in preparation that day in getting dressed, he prayed. When he put his shoes on, he prayed that God would give him the preparation of the gospel of peace, that he would be girded with truth, that he was appropriating to himself his, his new identity, he was saying, this is who I am, and this is, this is how I want to, to look. And, you know, it's interesting, while Paul doesn't say this, 
he is, in a very real sense, saying that the greatest need of the world, and you have to listen very carefully, the greatest need of the world is a transformed church full of people. Listen to this. I love this. Um, Ian Hamilton said, the hope for the nations, you've got to listen very carefully, especially if you watch a bunch of news. You've got to listen real carefully. The hope for the nations does not lie in political renewal. The hope of the nations does not lie in political renewal, societal regeneration, or the imposition of tougher laws for crimes. The hope of the nation does not lie in those things. Hamilton said the world needs to see and hear from a renewed Christian church. The world needs to see and hear from a renewed Christian church, a church freshly invaded by the power, grace, glory, and truth of the gospel. So that in all our bemoaning of what's going on in culture around us and in the world globally, our, our response ought to be we need to live as the most renewed new creatures that we already are in Christ so that the world will see his mark and his image in us. Notice what Paul says, actually, there in verse 29, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Um, If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You are part of the new creation. When he came out of the tomb, you came out with him. When he died, you died. When he was raised, you were raised. That's, that's, that's the teaching of Scripture. That's where your new identity comes from. Um, he is conforming us. He is renewing in us his image, renewing the righteousness and the holiness that we lost. You know, I mentioned this morning in Sunday school that the Holy Spirit was active in the life of Christ, and, and you see it from the very conception of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin. There, remember that angel tells Mary, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. It's the same idea of the Spirit at creation, overshadowing the unformed world and then bringing order out of chaos. And what is the Spirit doing? Knitting together in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the body of the Redeemer. He is, he is acting as the Spirit of new creation. What he's doing is he is bringing about the new creation in the womb of the Virgin Mary, in the darkness of the womb of the Virgin, so that what Christ is going to do is going to bring about that new creation and raise up his people with him to be part of that new creation by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. That's, that's the world you belong in if you're a Christian. That's why we can put off the old self. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, writing about this idea, says this. Listen very carefully. This is not something that is going to happen to us. If you don't, if you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear that. This is not something that is going to happen to us. It's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying, make sure this happens to you. Lloyd-Jones says it has happened. You can't be a Christian without this being true. It's not something that ought to happen to us. How often it's presented like that. They say, ah, now you've got to die with Christ if you want to deepen your spiritual life. But this isn't that. It isn't something that ought to happen to us. It has happened to us. If you're a Christian, this has happened to you already. When Christ died, you died. 
Lloyd-Jones says, because we are joined to Christ, we were baptized and joined in his death. We died with him. That's the whole case. Not something that ought to happen. It is not, therefore, something we should try to achieve in some form or shape or manner. It is something that has already taken place. Don't miss that. We are to live out of the reality of what is already true of us. If I could put it this way, I will never make the advances I need to make in the Christian life unless I come to terms with the fact that Christ has already brought about the new creation by raising us up spiritually with him. If I forget that, it will just be works righteousness. It's be me trying to live a good life, do better, pull myself up by my bootstraps when I fail, try to get over the paralysis of the guilt of my sin without recognizing what has happened in the death of Christ on the cross. Um, when I was a boy, I don't know about you, but I remember one of my early memories was learning about amnesia and thinking, man, I hope that never happens to me because that sounds awful. And, and hearing these stories about people that got into accidents and forgot who they were for 15, 20, 30 years, didn't remember anything about who they were, sounds awful. And what Paul is saying is don't live with spiritual amnesia. Don't, don't live thinking that you are still dead in your sins and trespasses. Live in light of who you already are in Christ. This is so important. Before he gives us that machine gun of applications at the end of the section, this is what he roots everything in. Um, John Murray, the great uh, systematic theologian of Westminster Seminary, put it this way, the old man has been put to death just as decisively as Christ died on the accursed tree. Your old nature has been put to death just as decidedly as Christ died on the accursed tree. Murray says to suppose that the old man has been crucified and still lives or has been raised again from this death is to contradict the obvious force of the import of the crucifixion. What he's saying is your old nature in Adam has already been crucified. I think what Paul is essentially saying when he talks about the old man and the new man is that you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, then your old man has been crucified. You've been raised up with him. You are a new creature in Christ. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. And, and everyone is to clothe themselves by the clothing that denotes either being in Adam or being in Christ. And so, thirdly, he is going to now talk about what we are to be. Notice that great therefore in verse 25. And he's going to give about six, five or six applications he says, notice this, therefore, having put away falsehood. Notice, he's not saying put it away. He says, since you already have, your old man has been crucified. Since you have put away falsehood, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Notice in the outworking of the call for us to clothe ourselves with what we are, there's an obligation that we have to one another. Notice that. He says, speaking the truth to one another because you are members of one another. And then notice verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, 
before we look at that briefly, I want to point out something you may not notice so obviously in this passage, and that is that when we go to live the Christian life, there are spiritual forces around us that are vying to have control of us. Let me, let me unpack that for you. Notice there that Paul says it is possible to have sinful anger and to embrace that sinful anger in such a way that the evil one gains some kind of foothold in our life, even as believers. And then notice what Paul says by way of contrast in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. And so, so the goal in the Christian life is to live in such a way that we are not giving place to the evil one and that we are giving place to the Spirit of God indwelling us. And that everything we are doing and all of our actions are in some way interacting with those spiritual realities in the unseen world in which we live. You know, what's very interesting here is that at the opening of this book, in chapter 1, the apostle said that God raised us up, in chapter 2, and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. The heavenly places. And then in chapter 6, He's going to say that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, with spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. Bookends. We've been seated in the heavenly places with Christ. We wrestle with forces of darkness in the heavenly places. And right in between, Paul begins to apply this in the life of the church, in individuals' Christian lives, And he essentially says, know that what you are doing, you are engaged, you are engaged in a warfare between the flesh and the spirit being played out on a cosmic field, heavenly realms, heavenly realities. Now, this is not kooky, charismatic stuff. Um, Whenever we allow ourselves to embrace sinful anger, we are in danger of giving place to the evil one. Um, I love this quote by John Calvin on uh, verse 26. Notice the command, be angry and do not sin. Here, believers are called to righteous anger. Most of us don't know what that looks like in any pure form because we so often slide into self-righteous anger or ungodly anger. And this is what Calvin says, listen, with respect to others, we ought to be angry, not at their persons, but at their faults. Nor should we be excited to anger by private offenses, but by zeal for the glory of the Lord. Our anger ought to subside without mixing with the violence of carnal passions. What what Paul's saying is, even in our anger toward wickedness around us, that it should be driven by a zeal for God's glory, a love for others, a hatred of wicked ways. But so often, as we know, and and let me say this this morning, the reason Paul has to say what he has to say in verses 25 to 32 is because so often we are not. We are not putting on in accord with what we already are. We are not clothing ourselves with the clothing that belongs to the new creature. 
Notice verse 28. Now Paul says, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I want to point this out this morning. There is not just the negation of evil. There is the positive of new creation living that Paul is always balancing. Notice this. And it comes out so clearly here. Let the one who stole steal no longer. Let him work with his hands that he may have something good to give to those in need. You see the, the new creational aspect of what is ours in Christ and how God wants us to clothe ourselves. If once we took, now he wants us to give. If once we were sinfully angry, now he wants us to learn what it is to have righteous anger. If once we We're living in lies and falsehood. He wants us to speak the truth. Notice that he sums up the new creation speech, really, in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Think about that. If I am clothing myself with the clothing of the new creation— and I am living in accord to what I already am in Christ, one of the marks is going to be that I only speak words to build up and not to tear down, to edify. And notice this, that by so doing that, and by speaking God's word in a way in which we will edify one another, notice what Paul says, that we can impart grace to those that hear you have the opportunity as a new creature in Christ to actually impart grace to other believers, to build them up further in Christ or to tear them down. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, let no corrupt speech, only what is edifying that it may impart grace to the hearers. And then notice the disposition of the heart. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, those are all things that mark what we were. And Paul says, put them away. There's no place for them in the life of a new creature in Christ. Now, I want to say this this morning. This is hard to preach on because I know my many failings, as we confessed in the pastoral uh, corporate confession this morning. None of us has done this as we ought. Um, None of us has clothed ourselves with the clothing of new creation as we ought. And so notice what Paul includes at the end here, and it's so important, verse 32. Why does Paul say this here? He says it because he knows that they are essentially going to be vacillating, at times wanting to put on the old clothing of the old man, the old Adamic nature. They're going to want to put on something that has... Been, been taken away from them, and they're not going to live as they ought to live in, in light of who they already are. And so he says, notice this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why does Paul have to say that? Because he knows that we are going to sin against one another. And he knows that we are going to need to ask for forgiveness one from another. And he knows that there is always a danger in those who have been sinned against to become self-righteous, embittered, and censorious to those who have sinned against them. You know, my best friend in the world said this to me many years ago, and he's absolutely right. 
He said, most relationships cannot stand even one single offense. Most people are so thin-skinned that if they feel like you've offended them one time, the friendship is over forever. And Paul says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. This is awesome, isn't it? Because when we are failing to put on the new man that we already are in Christ and to live and walk according to what he has already made us, then it's going to manifest itself in sinful anger, lies, falsehood, theft, malice, slander, bitterness, all of the things that Paul has called us to put off, And when that happens, we have a responsibility to keep short accounts with one another. Um, I I don't know if I've told you this. We moved to St. Simon's Island when I was 11 years old from, I know I'm a Yankee from Philadelphia. I'm sorry, y'all. I really want to be Southern. But moved to St. Simon's Island from Philadelphia in 89. I'll never forget the first time we went into the Ace Hardware right on the, the, the front of the island when you come in and we were checking out, and uh, the owner of the store said to my dad, so do you want to pay now, or do you want to put it on the ledger? And my dad was like, ledger? And he's like, yeah, you can just put all this on the ledger and pay for it at the end of the year. I was like, this is amazing. What kind of special world have we moved to? It's like the masters. Everything's free, and pimento cheese sandwiches are a dollar, and everything's wonderful. But, but the point of the ledger was that you were to keep those short accounts and you were to make sure that you took care of them. What Paul is saying is that we are to keep very short accounts with one another because God has atoned for our sins. He looks at Christ. He looks at the cross. He sees all of our sin. He sees all of our waywardness. But notice what Paul says at the end of this. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How can I deal with my brothers and sisters who don't live according to what they are in Christ and they put on the actions of the old man in their relationship to me, how can I bear with them in the same body by remembering that Christ had to atone for my sins, that God forgives me for his sake because of what he did at the cross, so that I have every reason to forgive those who have sinned against me. That is crucial. Notice how the gospel, every situation does what it needs to do so that we can live the way God wants us to live. Um, I want to read this last quote to you. Calvin is reflecting here. Notice verse 32, be kind to one another. There is a general sentiment floating around in really staunch theological circles that kindness is weakness. Um, God the Holy Spirit says this morning, be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. Um, John Calvin says this, listen to this, about kindness. He says, as this virtue will never reign in us unless it is attended by compassion, Paul charges us to be tender-hearted. 
He says this will lead us not only to sympathize with the distresses of our brethren as if they were our own, but to cultivate true humanity, which is affected by everything that happens to them in the same manner as if we were in their situation. You see what Paul's saying? Paul's saying in all our interactions, in in the call for us to live as new creatures in Christ, in the call for us to put off the old clothes and to be clothed with the new clothes that are ours in Christ, and as we are all called to grow up into Christ and do that, when we fail, Paul says we should take account of one another and have kindness and compassion toward one another as if we were in the same situations with one another. Now, I, I noted at the beginning of this sermon that what the world needs to see more than anything is this. You, you could have the most Christianized nation in the world civically and not have any of this. Um, you, cannot, you cannot make people... Um, become this. Christ and Christ alone has done this. And the Lord Jesus has done this for you. And what Paul says here to these Ephesian believers is true of you. If you are in Christ this morning, you are already a new creature. You have, your old man has been crucified with him. You've been raised up with him. And so Paul says, walk in that newness of life. Put on that mindset, wear those clothing, so that when others see you, they are going to know you belong to Christ, not because you tell them you do, but because they see the clothing that you're wearing. You know, I mentioned the prince and the pauper at the very outset. It was the clothing that people were looking at that marked the identity, even though it was a case of mistaken identity. If we wear the old clothing of depravity, then people are going to think that's what we are still. If we put on the new clothing that is ours by right of being new creatures in Christ, then people are going to see in the way we speak to one another, in the dealings that we have with one another, and in how we bear with one another. You know, if I could press this so deep into our minds and hearts this morning, I would, because I think this is so vital Before Paul is going to talk about applications to marriage and the family and the workplace and the governing authorities, before he talks about any of that, he goes right here and he says, be who you are in Christ and dress in accord with who you are in Christ, remembering what you were and knowing what you are to grow up into. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do bemoan our our sinfulness this morning. We acknowledge, Lord, that we have many times walked as we once walked in the futility of our minds and in that state of depravity in which you've redeemed us out of. We do ask you that you would have mercy on us. We pray that you would make us a people who know who we are in Christ Lord Jesus, would you remind us that you have made us new creatures, that you have raised us up, that you have given us the spirit of new creation, and that you have given us that spiritual clothing with which we are to be clothed. We do pray this morning that you would make us a congregation of men and women and boys and girls who long 
to put off the old man and his deeds and to put on the new man who is created according to the image of him who created us in righteousness and holiness. And so, our God, would you give us that mindset? Would you give us the ability to do this by faith in Christ? Would you make us a people who continue to learn Christ as we have heard him and received him as the truth is in him? And so would you do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.